The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. I'd like to welcome back to the program today, Anna Bodkin. She joins us on the telephone in Philadelphia. Hello, Anna. Hello, Vic. Thank you very much for having me back. Well, I had a good excuse because you have a new collection of essays that's just come out, and, and I, I was excited when I heard about it, so here you are. It's, it's called uh, Bright, Unbearable Reality. Yes. And, uh, wow, I know these, these have been collected from various places, and uh, I, I just, I don't know where to start with this. I was reading your uh, essay, False Passives, and, mm-hmm. and you have, um, you write, it is the racist world order which centers and upholds extractive industries and largely temperate climate powers that really does most of the determining. You're referring to expressions like trapped populations, and Mm -hmm. um, you state that scientists predict that almost one-fifth of our planet will be unlivable by 2070, at which time, unless they will have moved by then, three and a half billion people, half of the world's population today will live in the unlivable zone, and why would they not have moved? Trapped populations, the term ignores the cognitive rift between the axiom that migration is a primary form of climate adaptation and actuality that most destination geographies for migrants are responsible for the unfolding climate catastrophe and do all they can to keep out the people whose lives they have imperiled. They are doing the trapping. I I think that's really the crux. Mm. What, what, What do you have to say about that? Yeah, yeah, it is the crux. Um, you know, the the conversation that I want to have around the book, you know, with you, or outside, or the conversation that I hope the book um, encourages is a conversation about how we value human life and how we value human life differently depending on where this life exists and whose whose human life it is. Um, and uh, how, who determines who lives where, who determines freedom, uh, freedom of movement, freedom of, freedom of life even. Um, and until we have that conversation, and also a conversation about how we, even have this conversation, you know, how we talk about our planet, our people's planet, and the people on it. Um, The conversation that I keep hearing in the Global North is, how do we, meaning the Global North, solve and I think I'm going everything every single word of, of this has to be put in quotation marks. The problem of migrants. Um, and and that 
kind of dehumanizing on people in conversation um, is, in my opinion, at uh, one of the one of the things at the core of the catastrophe and the criminal catastrophe that we are witnessing and participating in. Uh, why is it that people on the move are a problem that needs to be solved? Why is it that why is the why is there the fear of uh, of of the migrant? Um, you know, and the book also talks in a different essay about the origin of the word migrant, which. Um, was first used in the English language in, to refer to animals, mm-hmm. and that again, you know, bring that brings us back to the idea that somehow people who are on the move are less than human, and who decides that people are less than human? It, you know, it, it it is a conversation about racism. It is a conversation about colonialism. It is a conversation about white supremacy. Um, it is a conversation about, uh, you know, the 1% um, that really is uh, um, omnipresent. Well, they may not call them colonies anymore, but the legacy of colonialism is, is very much with us. And you have spent a lot of time tracing the routes of some of these migrants um, in, in your essay about uh, walking through the Sahara. You, you think about all these people who have walked across the desert looking for a better life, all these vanished migrants who have died out in the middle of nowhere and, and, and no one knows what happened to them. They've drowned in the ocean. They've, they've died in the desert. And, and they're just... They're like statistics. They're, they're, they're lost souls, and in the global north, they're just a problem. Mm. It's also very interesting, you know, when we talk about this country, we're speaking in the United States, um, there is a contradictory narrative. Um, there is, you know, the white supremacist narrative of the migrant who comes to this continent from Europe looking for a better world. And that story, that narrative is celebrated mm-hmm. by white people, by the white-dominated culture, right? The, the story of settlers in, in, you know, what today is Oklahoma is celebrated with recreate reenactments of you know of 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 this of the sooner episode of the, this American history, mm-hmm. uh, but when it comes to people who are not white, who do not come from Europe, um, there is a completely different uh, rationale and a completely different narrative. Uh, why is the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of comfort? different depending on where you come from. Mm-hmm. Anna Bodkin joins me. Her new collection of essays, Bright, Unbearable Reality. And um, you just mentioned Oklahoma. In, in your essay 
forgiving the unforgivable. You talk about how you went to Oklahoma to get a baggie of dirt. And, and this is such a, a powerful essay. It, it made me so sad and, and so guilty for, for what we've done to the Native peoples in this country. And, and Geronimo is such a symbol of, of this injustice. Mm. Geronimo is also a symbol of many other things. Geronimo remains in the, you know, in the colonial parlance, a symbol of, you know, uh, this it, it resistance, resistance fighter who must be uh, vanquished. Geronimo was the code name for the operation to capture Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. Um, that this is recent history we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, Geronimo uh, was a medicine man who, who, who has been widowed and orphaned multiple times by Mexican and U.S. troops and ended up surrendering to the U.S. Army um, living as a prisoner of war in an Apache prisoner of war camp on a U.S. military base that continues to be a military base in Oklahoma and, uh, you know, died uh, of pneumonia, but ultimately probably of neglect and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, desperation. Uh, and is buried on the U.S. military base. Talk about symbolism. Um, and desecration. Yeah. And desecration, yes. And his his uh, grave was desecrated by members of the Skull and Bones fraternity mm-hmm. uh, at Yale. Uh, his Skull remains at Yale despite a lawsuit by his descendants in the 1990s to return to repatriate the 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 remains. Um, you know, the, we can talk about colonialism as something of the past, but it really isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, you mentioned feeling guilty. I think I think the discomfort of of shame uh, is not something that we're very practiced in. And I think that that uh, is maybe another vocabulary that might be worth uh, investigating. What is the vocabulary of shame? How do we live with shame? How do we move forward um, with, with, Humility with with shame, with acknowledgement that goes beyond you know the lip service of land acknowledgement. Um, that that's all you know. What I love about the essay form is that it allows you to, or allows me, the writer, to ask all these questions and just kind of hang them up there. Uh, for this, I sort of think of the essay a little bit like uh, like those uh, um, 
you know, uh, leaflets that people hang on, on lampposts with, lo- with little uh, um, frill of phone numbers that you can tear, tear and, you know, walk around with. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think of this collection as a collection of maybe questions. Um, some of them are probably very uncomfortable questions, and some of them are hopefully encouraging questions um, that readers can you know, walk around with and, and, and try to translate into their own questions or their own answers or their own new language. This is The Book Nook. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Book Nook on WYSO. My fourth interview with Anna Bodkin continues. We're talking about her collection of essays, Bright, Unbearable Reality. When we insist on separating ourselves in in our affluent society from the people that just want to survive and just want to be in a better place uh, due to climate change and, and other factors that are driving them away from from the lands where their ancestors have, have been all these years. And you, you use the word vocabulary, and we have these terms that, that separate us, terms like trapped population, um, and words that we have to change the, the word, like pronghorn to antelope. And, and you mentioned they named this weapon after Geronimo, or, the, or they, they named this uh, Osama bin Laden hunt after Geronimo. Uh, I just was listening to the news, and, and uh, they, they were talking about how Great Britain, Italy, and Japan are working on a um, new fighter jet that will be pilotless. So, so we can just have somebody sitting somewhere like they do with drones, just sending these things out to wreak havoc on whoever and um, to keep these these populations under control? It is about a great distancing, um, which is interesting, uh, or which interestingly <laughs> uh, comes at a time of great accessibility also. So we have, on the one hand, this incredible world that is, so interconnected that, you know, after we hang up, I can call my friends in Mali in the bush who are, you know, herding cattle um, and talk to them uh, in real time on the phone. And at the same time, uh, it's also a, um, a time when we, di- we have learned to distance ourselves uh, with such great um, success that we can kill people on a separate, on a different continent mm-hmm. without even, not even stepping foot on the continent, but even without even physically hovering over it because we can send unmanned um, death devices. So it's a, it's a strange uh, it's a strange kind of um, situation in the world where we're at once extremely connected, and you know, so many people are um, born in one place and live in a different place. Uh, one in eight people, you know, when I was writing this essay, this this collection, it was one in seven, and now that the population has reached eight billion, it's probably more like one in one in eight. Um, live are born in one place and end up living in a different place. 
but at the same time, um, the, the the degree of callousness toward one another um, is also it feels like it's also peaking proportionately. Eight billion people on the planet. A hundred years ago, there were only two billion. Gosh, I wonder why resources are becoming so scarce. And your friends in Mali, do they have your phone number written on their shoes? Uh, most likely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> most likely. Yeah. We, we separate ourselves. In, in that essay about Geronimo, forgiving the unforgivable, you have a hard time forgiving, but these people that you were visiting in Mexico, what, what amazing people. What a story. Yeah. Um, it's a story about um, three sisters who were brought up to believe that they were white. And um, later in their lives discovered um, that they very likely are descended from Geronimo on both maternal and paternal sides. Um, Geronimo had several wives, um, and uh, some of these wives ended up in um, the same area of Mexico in the Sierra Madres. Um, so these uh, ladies um, had decided to perform a ceremony, they call it the ceremony of forgiveness, Mm -hmm. to kind of come to terms with the generational harm that um, colonialism and uh, capitalism had inflicted upon their families. And they invited me as an observer and kind of a documentarian um, and, um, you know, it was, it was an ex- extraordinary gesture, I think, but I also am an outsider, so I can only evaluate the gesture as an outsider. And it is, you know, I, I, I quote in the story from Zbigniew Herbert's poem, The Envoy of Mr. Cogito, which is my favorite poem by Herbert, mm-hmm. uh, and do not forgive it is not your power to forgive those betrayed at dawn. So it's just not my place to, mm. to issue forgiveness for um, a crime that has been committed um, against someone who is not me. And you brought them a baggie filled with dirt. From Geronimo's grave in Oklahoma, because I was living in Oklahoma at the time. And uh, um, I stopped by uh, to pay respects. And um, the idea of, I can't, I don't think, it felt really like a spontaneous um, decision. Uh, And... uh, I think they appreciated um, this gesture um, when I when I returned the soil to them. Mm-hmm. You were living in Tulsa. I was living in Tulsa. Yes. This is a, another haunted landscape 
Well, you know, um, the Vislava Zimborska poem, uh, Reality Demands, I think it's called. She says, maybe there are no fields other than battlefields. I feel like, um, especially in this country, um, every landscape is haunted uh, because of because of the history of conquest, because of the history of genocide. Um, Tulsa um, was um, one of the geographies where um, the U.S. government marched um, Native Americans from the from east of the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. Um, during the genocidal campaign to cleanse um, the eastern United States uh, for whites. And uh, Tulsa is also the site of the first time the U.S. government bombed its own citizens from the air in uh, 1921 um, mm-hmm. when, uh, when it uh, sent... Uh, aircraft to drop firebombs on uh, a black neighborhood um, in Greenwood. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, not to devalue the magnitude of that massacre. And now I live in Philadelphia, uh, where in 1985, the United States and the, the government once again sent uh, aircraft to bomb um, a black neighborhood. Move, uh, that was the move bombing? That was the move bombing, uh-huh. yes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, you know, I think that we must uh, consider every lynching of a black uh, person uh, by police as a crime of the same magnitude. Uh, and we must consider every removal of peaceful citizens from, uh, from their homes uh, as an act of uh, violence, be that you know, a, a, an eviction of a subsidized housing community to make room for development or, you know, uh, the, 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 or, or, um, a removal of a nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, again, it's, it's a question about how do we value, why do we value human lives the way we do? Why do we, why, um, was it there's a there is a line attributed to Joseph Stalin? Mm. Uh, you know, let's bring some dictators in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, uh, "One death is a tragedy; a million deaths is a statistic." Uh-huh. So, why do we value um, numbers uh, over humans? Yeah. And aren't numbers composed of humans? Yeah. Was he referring to the famine in Ukraine? Stalin? 
you know, it's such an apocryphal phrase. Uh huh. Yeah. Like I said, it's attributed to him, so yeah. I, I'm yeah. not. I, yeah. I think I think he did say it. I think he possibly did say that. Yeah. In case you're just tuning in, my guest is Anna Bodkin. We're talking about her new collection of essays, Bright, Unbearable Reality. You're listening to 91.3 WYSO, community-owned public radio for curious listeners. You throw in uh, little snips and snaps from uh, poetry, and and I noticed you mentioned two things uh, by Galway Cannell. I actually had him on the show many years ago, and I thought, I bet she really likes Mm. him. Mm. I really love Galway Cannell. Yeah. Yeah, we were very lucky to have. I mean, you know, I also keep, you know, again, something that I keep returning to in my thoughts and in my essays, since these are my thoughts, um, is that we're extraordinarily lucky uh, because we have have this extraordinary wealth of beauty Mm -hmm. at our disposal. Um, I was talking to someone, I had a a book event uh, the other day and and my interlocutor asked me, um, wh- wh- whom am I walking with in terms of, you know, a literary ancestors? And, you know, I, I think we're all walk. We, we have to remember that we're all walking with everyone. Mm-hmm. We're all walking with um, Galway Kimmel and, uh, you know, King Lalibela and uh, the... the uh, artists whose names we no longer know who painted uh you know caves in libya in 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 what today is libya in in the fifth uh five thousand years ago so we we walk with so much art and such wealth of beauty man-made beauty and natural beauty um and i think that that is very much what keeps us going, this ability to appreciate beauty and the ability to create beauty and pause uh, and fill our hearts uh, again so that we can continue uh, having them broken. Something to give us some kind of hope. Yes, we are the hoping animal. Yes. Anna, the first time I had you on the show was some... I think it was nine years ago for The World is a Carpet. Oh, my goodness. That was a long time. Yeah. I've had you on since. I love talking to you about your work. You, um, Thank you so much. Yeah. You, you really strike a chord in me when, when I read your stuff, and, and it's just so so powerfully written, and um, every word, you just you put so much into it. What kind of stuff... Are you working on now? Are you working on any books? Are you, are you working on any projects? I am. I am working on a collection of short fiction. Oh, wow. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, You've been working on that for a while, haven't you? Um, yes. You know, not... Um, uh, I never focused on it. Uh-huh. Uh, I have written short fiction and w- have been lucky enough to publish a little bit of short fiction here and there, but um, i spending uh, my writing time now, for the most part, writing fiction. I'm still working. I still write essays. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm learning something new 
I think, you know, I think uh, one uh, great uh, side um, side effect is probably not the word I'm looking for. Uh, one great extra benefit of being a writer is um, that you have an excuse to constantly learn something um, about the world and about our motivation in the world. Mm -hmm. And fiction is definitely a place to consider motivation, human motives, Mm -hmm. human uh, desires, um, to, to do this investigation into what makes us um, do wonderful and terrible things. Mm-hmm. Well, I will hope and look forward to uh, that project uh, becoming another book from you. Thank you. Uh, hopefully we can chat about it in a couple of years. I hope so, too. My guest has been Anna Bodkin, and her new essay collection is Bright, Unbearable, reality. Thank you so much for your time. Vic, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. That was Anna Bodkin talking about her new essay collection, Bright, Unbearable Reality. And uh, there are now eight billion of us on this planet, and our uh, things that we do, our actions and inactions, have an effect, an impact upon the people around us. And uh, I cannot recommend that collection of essays highly enough if you uh, want to consider all those people and uh, the world that we're living on right now. Bright, unbearable reality. And during that interview, I mentioned to Anna that uh, she had quoted the poet Galway Cannell a couple of times during her uh, reading of that book and, and my reading of it. And she really likes poetry, quotes a lot of poets in there. In 2003, Galway Cannell and another poet were invited to the White House by uh, First Lady Laura Bush. And then when the uh, Bush White House found out that uh, these poets were opposed to the war in Iraq, they rescinded the invitation. I'm going to bring you an archive interview up next uh, from one of those poets who was banned from the White House right after this. It's your best of the Book Nook bonus segment on WYSO. Back in 2002, I did my only interview with a very prolific writer, Jay Perini. He's a poet, he's a biographer, he's a novelist, and he had just published a novel 20 years ago called The Apprentice Lover. And we're going to bring you an excerpt from that interview next, right here on the best of the Book Nook. I said to my history tutor, Anne Wright, uh, the first week I was in St. Andrews, that I wanted to be a poet, and she said, well, then you must meet Alastair. And she introduced me to Alastair Reed, who had, in fact, been a visiting professor at Antioch College mm. in Yellow Springs there um, the year before I met him. So a lot of your listeners will know Alastair. And Alastair became my mentor. I would paddle out to his cottage on the North Sea every single afternoon with a new poem in my rucksack, as we called it. And it was damp from the rain, usually, and my sweat and I would stick it on his kitchen table, and so we'd have tea, he'd make a big pot of tea, and he would correct my poem, as he called it. He would, he would suddenly, you know, change stanzas, lines would disappear, new lines would reappear. He also directed my reading, and this was totally unofficial, extracurricular. 
you know, he read through Yeats with me and Frost and Gerard Menley Hopkins, and he was himself then translating Pablo Neruda and um, Jorge Luis Borges, the great Latin American writers. Neruda the poet, Borges the poet, not the fiction writer. Borges and Neruda actually came and visited Alistair, and I met those writers, and it was you know, really quite inspiring and thrilling to me. You met Borges? I met Borges, yes. Spent quite a, quite a bit of time there with Borges. Wow. And uh, that was exciting. I can remember one time I was babysitting Borges for Alistair, and um, I got in my little, uh, a friend of mine by the name of Peter Ebury, Edbury or something, I remember his name after 35 years for some reason, loaned me his little Morris Minor, and I jammed poor blind Borges into the Morris Minor and drove him around Fife. He said, I, w- I want the tour of Fife, the <laughs> county. <laughs> so I explained everything to him as we were driving along, and he said, I would like to go into a pub. So I led him into one of these dank Scottish pubs. You know, Scottish pubs have no are no frills. They're meant for serious drinking. I mean, in those days, you would drink in a sawdust floor um, bar as many pints as you could till they closed at 10, and then you, in tra- traditional Scottish fashion, stepped outside the pub and you threw up. <laughs> so I explained this to Borges. He said, ooh, it's very different in Argentina. So we um, sat down at this wooden bear table, and I brought him a pint, I'll never forget, I was, you know, 20 years old, and I put it in front of Borges, and I said, Alistair tells me you're quite a writer. <laughs> I still remember <laughs> how innocent I was. He said, oh, well, you know, he said, I've only written little stories, just little tiny stories. I said, really? And I was very dismissive. I said, you know, doesn't a real writer have to write a novel? He said, oh, yes. He said, you're probably right, you know, the great writers, I'm not one of them, write novels. He said, I once had a desire to write a novel, of course. I, re- I wanted to, for many decades, I wanted to write a huge epic about the Pamplonas with the gauchos and many families and generations of internecine warfare. <laughs> and he said, um, he said, but it just never happened. And one morning in middle age, I woke up and I wrote about a 500-word review of that book. And he said, that satisfied the impulse to write the novel. <laughs> so, um... One of the great writers of the 20th century. You had no clue who he was at the time. Well, you know, Alistair explained to me that he was a major writer, but I hardly believed it until I, once I, you know, Alistair gave me the stories he had translated. <coughs> Flan, Ukbar, Orbis Tertius, and, you know, Circular Ruins and so forth. I was deeply impressed, and it became a permanent influence on me. Mm. Neruda as well, you know, strong influence on, on me. But, you know, those days I was mostly just writing poetry, and I and I went to, got my first job teaching at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire as, um, as, a, as a poet. And I taught modern poetry and um, Elliot Frost and so forth. And um, it was there, I, you know, I, always, I set up my routine, which I've kept to this day. I mean, I get up at the same time. I'm very, 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 very organized. <laughs> and I get up and I take my kids to school nowadays. I've done this for 30 years, the same routine. I'll go to a, a Vermont diner. And I sit there from 8.15 till 9.30 writing poetry every single morning. Even on the road this morning in California, I made sure to get up at the same time and write my poetry for, for, from 8.15 till 9.30. And then I turn to prose. I write either criticism, biography, or novels, such as the new one. So over the course of a long, gish life, I've written a hell of a lot of books. And uh, just, just, you know, on the question of writing, I write, I don't think in terms of uh, genre so much. I used to think it was a bit odd, but now I just think it's writing. In the morning, I feel like working on poetry. It's more meditative. seems right for me. And then I turn to prose, and I, and I move easily among these genres, fiction, criticism, 
essay and uh, novels and biographies. And I've written, you know, over the years, lots of poetry, probably thousands of poems. And I've written, um, you know, I've published, I've written about nine or ten novels, and I've published six of them. Other ones I sat on, didn't like them. I've written some full-length plays. I have one coming on next year in, in uh, southern Vermont at a professional theater. I've written um, biographies of John Steinbeck and Robert Frost. I wrote a critical study of the poet Theodore Recchi, my favorite American poet, and um, books of essays, and, you know, this and that. So just a kind of a work-a-day literary guy here. Well, clearly you're, you're very talented at biography, just based on what you just said. My guest is Jay Perini, and uh, Jay's new novel is The Apprentice Lover. Were you a conscientious objector? In, in heart I was. Um, I would not have gone to the Vietnam War, and I made that clear to everyone. Um, when I left the U.S., I felt like I was, it was exit pursued by bears. I had been taken to um, an examination by my draft board up in Pennsylvania, and they'd made me 1A for a while there. Then I got it back to my student deferment, but it was a bit of a struggle there. And when I went to Scotland, I said, to hell with it. And every time I got a letter from my draft board, I would put it into the fire. You know, in those days, every room you built a little coal fire in Scotland. Hmm. So um, nothing ever happened, and it came 1975, and, and that was finally uh, okay. And, um, you know, I don't think I was, I think I, I had a fair, and when they did the lottery, I got a fairly high number. Not not tremendously high, I forget what it was. But I, I think I escaped being, you know, hauled in and by the skin of my teeth into jail or something. Hmm. But I certainly was, you know, uh, obsessed with the Vietnam War as everyone was who grew up in that era. Felt it the, I mean, it's per- permanently cha- altered my view of America. I've remained, you know, uh, you know my, my, my politics run somewhere along the lines of Noam Chomsky. Ooh. You know? Ooh. Ooh, one of those, one of those, one of those lefty you know, guys. Something like that. Well, we had um, recently uh, some guys of that stripe on this program. We've had uh, Ralph Nader, mm-hmm. uh, Studs Terkel, yeah, well, David Barsamian. Yeah, mm-hmm. those guys. And then I'm... Um, you know, then I, I, I continued to spend a lot of time in Europe, you know, endless, so lots of, you know, trips to Europe, and every year I've gone back once, twice, even three times, and um, spent, you know, over the course of, of, of the last 25 years, I've spent two, two years or so in Italy. Uh, certainly a year I was living down the Amalfi Coast, and um, my wife and I, with our two little babies, this was 20 years ago, rented a villa on a cliffside overlooking the beautiful a Tyrrhenian Sea, you know, in Italy, the Mediterranean, mm. the Tyrrhenian Sea, between Salerno and Capri, in Naples. Cop- I say Capri in the Italian manner. And that's where I met, in fact, Gore Vidal, who makes a little cameo appearance in my novel. Oh, okay. I was, uh, one day, I was not in the house a week when I, you know, there was a beautiful um, terrace on the top of the house, Lemon Grove, and then there was a huge white palazzo on a, hanging from a cliff right above our house. And I said to the tobacconist who lived who was down the road, um, who lives in the great palazzo? Some duco, il duque. And he said, no, no, no. He said an American writer lives there, Gore Vidal. Said, oh my <laughs> God! I said I love his work. And he said, well, he walks by your house at Via Torricelli every single day at five o'clock. And so I left a little note for him, and he buys a newspaper from me. The man said, and then has a drink at the Bar Serena. <coughs> So I left a note for Vidal, and I said, Dear Mr. Vidal, I'm an American writer, and I'm going to be living at this address this year, and uh, if there's ever a chance to meet you, I like your work, and would love that. Well, that night, boom, 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 on my door, you know, 6 o'clock, 
Parini, come for dinner. <laughs> and it was Vidal. And uh, so I went for dinner with my wife, and um, we met his companion, Howard. And, and uh, you know, I actually would say Gore was actually somewhat lonely in my, in my view, because um, he would every day pound on my door and, ha- and haul me out for a drink. So virtually every single day, the door, the, he would pound on my door, Parini, Parini, at 5 o'clock. And I'd go down to the bar, sit by, go, well, follow him down. We'd look, buy a newspaper and sit together and talk and drink. And uh, we became extremely close friends, you know. How annoying of him. <laughs> yes, how annoying of him to pound <laughs> on my door. He was the most wonderful conversationalist, still is. You know, we still talk on the phone once, twice, three times a week sometimes, all these years. Amazing. My guest is Jay Perini, and uh, from your name, Jay, I'm guessing that uh, Italy is, is a, a return for you. Yeah, I feel Italian. Um, you know, my... Um, I know where my grandparents came from, and I love it, and uh, and I have a great devotion to all. You know, my wife and I spent our honeymoon in Umbria one summer. We've been back many times. We lived in Amalfi and have gone back many times to stay for extended periods. And I've been going to Capri. You know, I first went in fact 1971. Uh, you know, in living in Scotland, I had a lot of free time, and I would go down to Italy. And I remember taking the ferry from. I took it from Sorrento the first time, yeah, Sorrento the first time out to Naples, out to uh, Capri, and uh, stayed in a bed and breakfast on the island for a while, and just overwhelmed by. I mean, I had felt that I had never been on a more beautiful island in my entire life, and I started reading up its history, and I met a lot of the people there, and so forth, and so I uh, always wanted to write a novel set on Capri, in which I could pull my knowledge of the island and put it to use. You know, as a writer, we're always trying to put things to use that we know. Mm-hmm. And so I know a lot about Capri and Italian history and the writers who lived on Capri and the painters. and You know, people like Rilke lived there and Maxine Gorky and Somerset Maugham and, uh, you know, all these amazing writers. Graham Greene, whom I knew, and so forth. And W.H. Auden spent a lot of time there. He lived in, on the little island next to Capri called Ischia. But he had friends on Capri, so he was frequently on Capri. And he also turns up in the book. That the book is The Apprentice Lover. Jay Perini wrote it. It takes place primarily on the island of Capri. And there's a number of uh, elements here. We have the Vietnam War. Uh, we also have historical elements. Uh, you go back and you look back at that Roman emperor. I can Tiberius. Rem- I can remember reading about him and his minnows years ago. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a, a number of levels operating here. Well, I like to think that the book is multi-layered. I mean, it's it's many novels occurring simultaneously. It's, mm-hmm. On the one hand, it's an historical novel about Tiberius and Capri, and the whole history of the island, all the people who live there, all of the conflicting lives. About the and then under, and, and following from that, it's a novel about these exiles, political exiles, sexual exiles, artistic exiles people who don't feel at home in their own place and feel the need to escape somewhere, which I have often felt. And it's also a novel that takes place really in the hero's childhood, in his head. I mean, I run through his entire life growing up and his conflicts with his parents and his brother and his family and northeastern Pennsylvania coal country, which is where I grew up. It's also, you know... um, a coming-of-age novel on some level. This guy is, 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 my hero is sort of vaguely, vaguely, vaguely based on me, is, you know, wants to be a writer, and he, and he takes a job with a famous older poet novelist based on, uh, frankly, on Robert Graves. 
Anyone? Oh, really? Yeah, that's what was in my head. Okay, now and we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. And um, <laughs> so it's a novel where he confronts, you know, the issues I felt I had to confront. First of all, the huge Henry Jamesian issue of the American, the innocent American, plopped down in the midst of European sophisticates. I put the, in fact, he's mostly amid British people on Capri. Capri is really an English island at some level, or a German island in the middle of Italy. Lots of foreigners there. And um, I wanted to use the fact that I've spent so much time in Britain. I know the British very well. Seven years in Scotland, and then I was a professor at Oxford later on for a year. And I've been, you know, I go to Britain constantly. Every year, once, twice, or three times. And I stand, I'm on the phone always with my British friends. So Britain is a huge part of my, my life. So all of these different worlds that I've known uh, sort of converge, conflict on this uh, island. Tell us about Tiberius. Well, Tiberius was the crazy Roman emperor who, you know, um, in the last dozen years of his life, set up um, um, a capital in exile far from the center of Rome on Capri, this remote island in the uh, Tyrrhenian Sea. There he built 12 gorgeous palaces and uh, lived a life of incredible decadence. The famous um, issue of Sejanus is, is part of the, of the story of Tiberius. He had a great. There was a man in Rome, in Rome called Sejanus, mm-hmm. a senator, who was getting a huge power and was going to take. And, and Tiberius was afraid he was going to try to usurp the emperor's throne. And Sejanus was visiting him, and and, uh, and Tiberius said, "You know, I'm Sejanus. I'm going to make you um, my viceroy. You will be in charge of the whole Roman Empire for me. You will speak for me. Take this letter, open it in front of all the Roman senators, read it aloud." And you'll be acclaimed um, emperor in um, in viceroy emperor. So Sejanus was very very puffed up and thrilled. He had finally wa- worked his wiles on Tiberius, and he takes his letter into the chambers of the Roman Senate and he starts reading. And it says, <laughs> "This is the letter from Tiberius, emperor of Rome. Sejanus stands before you. Arrest him and decapitate him on the spot." <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Oh, ouch! So that's in my book. I mean, every—I mean, I tried to. Every, the book is really, you know, teeming with some um, fun things. I mean, really. Um, I guess the sad thing about the book is that there are no readers in this country who are much interested in such books. No, <laughs> far rather read Stephen King, and I—I I, probably I would even, you know, when I go on a car trip. You know what I listen to? Stephen King. I'm sure you do. <laughs> My guess is Jay Perini. You know, Jay, if it's any reassurance, yeah. yesterday we had your friend Thomas Mallon on the program, yeah. and following the interview, I heard from six or seven listeners who said, I'm going to go out and get that book. I'm fascinated. And that's why we have this program, because yeah. we want to talk about books like The Apprentice Lover, and otherwise, how are people going to hear about them? It's true. I mean, the system is set up in such a way that no one hears about the interesting books that are really out there. And so... You know, and you go into Barnes and Noble and Borders, and what do they, you know, see stack after stack after stack of Tom Clancy, and and these these are not books, you know, they're garbage, and so it's really sad. Well, Tom Clancy's going to be my guest tomorrow. No, just kidding. <laughs> you uh, scared me. And that was Jay Perini, our only interview with Jay, recorded 20 years ago for his novel The Apprentice Lover, and uh, that was a live interview back uh, in the day. We did all our shows live. And uh, that particular one, I was having some fun with him because he started disparaging best-selling novelist Tom Clancy. And so I, I teased him right there 
the end of that excerpt by saying, yeah, well, uh, Tom Clancy's going to be on the show tomorrow. Of course, it wasn't true. I never did interview Tom Clancy. And uh, even after his death, Tom Clancy's legacy continues. Uh, his books are being written by other people now. And uh, that's always an interesting thing when you're so famous that the publisher says, well, we've got to keep publishing this writer, Robert Parker or Robert Ludlum or Tom Clancy, in infinity. And uh, that was Jay Perini, uh, who has done it all. He's, he's written poetry, he's written novels, he's written biographies, and he was a little upset there because he doesn't feel like he has the readership that he feels he merits. He's still active, and uh, he was bemoaning the fact uh, that his books just aren't, aren't bestsellers, but hey, he's a great writer, and I've never interviewed him since. That was recorded live back in 2002 on your Best of the Book Nook. And I hope you'll tune in tomorrow when my guest will be Robert Freeman Wexler on Christmas Day. He has a new novel out. It's called The Silverberg Business. And uh, Robert writes a lot of fantasy novels. And uh, this is sort of a, a fantasy slash detective novel from Robert. And Robert made his first visit to the program about 20 years ago. And during that initial interview, I actually kind of had a hard time getting him to say very much. And uh, his interviewing skills have really gotten a lot better. And uh, this is really a fun interview we're going to have tomorrow with Robert at 1030 on Christmas morning. I'll be talking to Robert Freeman Wexler about the Silverberg business and skullheads. There are skullheads in this story. That's right. On the book nook tomorrow morning, 1030.